0: Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you do occupy eternity, that time really is in your hands, and that it's going somewhere, that the plan that you have is not only unfolded in the past, but it continues to unfold in the present. And you, great God, who not only occupy eternity, but have established the universe and the galaxies and the solar system and this planet, that you're at work in the life of this nation and the life of this community, the life of this church and, and in our hearts. That, Lord, you have a plan and a purpose and a direction that things are unfolding exactly as you've purposed and that in the end you will be glorified and Jesus will be magnified. And as Paul wrote so long ago, as he was quoting Isaiah, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is is the Lord, to the glory of the Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea. Each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh." After this, I looked and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth it was devouring breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet it was different from all the beasts that went before it and it had ten horns and I was considering the horns and there was another horn a little one coming up among them "...before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and mouth speaking pompous words." We come to another great division in the book of Daniel. In chapters 1 through 7, it deals with the destiny of nations. And in chapters 8 through 12, it's going to describe the destiny of one nation, the singular nation of Israel. And after the 7th chapter, the book of Daniel ceases to be written in the language known as Aramaic. And remember, for those of you who have been following along in our study in the book of Daniel, I intimated to you that Aramaic was the language of commerce and trade. It was the lingua It was the common language in the region, and I suspect that it was written in that language so that the Gentile nations could see and understand God's plan and God's purpose. And after the seventh chapter, the book ceases to be written. It returns to the Hebrew language. Alfred Weber, the historian and the the economist, he wrote a book called Farewell to European History. He wrote, to the one endowed with a political perspective, it must be clear that we are at the end of world history as we know it. For those of you who watch the History Channel, and for those of you who like to go back in time and see how things have unfolded in the past, It isn't uncommon to ask and answer the question, how close to the end of human history are we? At what point will the Gentile governments cease? And again, when you stop and you just pause just for a moment and you think about the presence of nuclear weapons in Pakistan, in India, in North Korea, and China, and then very soon in Iran, it doesn't seem far-fetched that self-destruction is right around the corner. And what will happen to the final outcome of the nations in the world in which we live? Now, when I first thought about Pakistan and then India having nuclear capability, something inside of me said, you know, it's just wrong for people who believe in reincarnation to have nuclear weapons. It just doesn't make sense to me. How close are we? Stay tuned. According to Dr. John Walbert of Dallas Theological Seminary, he writes that the seventh chapter of Daniel provides what he calls the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events that you will find anywhere in the Old Testament. By the way, Dr. John Walbert actually preached behind this pulpit. I traded a Glock 45 for this pulpit. And I think I made a good deal. It's a a distinguished pulpit. A lot of famous people have, have preached behind this pulpit. But Dr. John Walbert is one of them. The problem with the prophecy is it's not linear or chronological. Now, the first six chapters of Daniel were in historical chronological order, but it's not true from chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie where it has flashbacks and flash-forwards and flashbacks and flash-forwards, and you go, I'm getting confused. Where are we at in the timeline? Well, Daniel's four visions take place over a 22-year period of time. And in chapters 1 through 6, Daniel has interpreted the dreams of others. But in chapter 7, this dream that he has, it will be interpreted by the angel of the Lord. In chapter 2, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar was of human history, and it was from a human perspective. You'll remember in Daniel chapter 2, he saw the vision of the statue with the head of gold and the chest of silver and the belly of bronze and the legs of iron. But now we're going to see a new perspective. It's not the perspective of man looking at himself and considering his own circumstances, but it's the perspective of God. When Charles A. Beard, the famous historian, was asked if he could summarize the lessons of history in a single volume, he said, not only can I do it in less than a single volume, I can do it in four sentences. He wrote, number one, who the gods would destroy. They first make mad with power. Number two, the mills of the gods grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly small. Number three, the bee fertilizes the flower that it robs. And number four, when it's dark enough, you can see the stars and the cycles come and the cycles go. And now we see human history with God's eyes. And the human beings and the civilizations of human beings are seen as ravenous, vicious, vicious. Beasts devouring and being devoured by one another. And even though this prophecy might seem like a confusing cacophony of sights and sounds and animals and people and nations and events, if you'll pay close attention, you'll see that it's a collage of the Lord's sovereignty in the affairs of human history. And in that collage will be woven the promise of a Savior and the coming of a Christ, a redeemer and a forgiver and a reconciler. In other words, all of this means that God has a plan and that history has a terminus, an end game, a final outcome. And from Daniel's perspective that God is giving to him, it's it's pushing closer and closer to a Messiah. And there is a sense of wonder that God would even reveal the future at all. And the Lord will do something more than just reveal the future. And this, if if you don't get anything else, you need to understand this. The most important thing about Daniel is not the revelation of the future, but the revelation of Christ and the revelation of God. In other words, as you look into the future, you see the place of Jesus and the place that God has ordained. This is why this book, Daniel, has been called the Revelation of the Old Testament. Now, the chapter that we're looking at can be divided into three sections. And each of the sections are going to begin with the phrase, I was looking, or I was watching, or I kept peering or gazing. The first section is comprised in verses 2 through 8, which we read. The second section is going to begin in verses 9 and 10 and 11. You'll note in verse 9, he says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. We sang about that tonight, but we're going to look at that more next week. The final segment begins in verses 13 through 27. And if you look at verse 13, it says, I was watching in the night. And then look ahead again in verse 21. I was watching. The whole chapter is filled with vision, if you will. And what Daniel does is he repeats that phrase throughout the chapter. I was looking. I was watching. I was looking, and I was watching. He's inviting you to see what he sees. He's inviting you to enter into the sights and the sounds and the smell of the beasts as he begins to describe them. Have you have you ever smelled a wet dog? You just go, there's a wet dog in here. You just know it. And that's exactly what Daniel is doing. He's, he's inviting you to see what it is that he sees. G.K. Chesterton wrote in a child's book, Stand up and keep your childishness. Read all the Pendant's creeds and strictures, but don't believe in anything that can't be told in colored pictures. In other words, here's what he's doing. He wants to paint a picture. So that you can see it. By the way, Daniel is a book about colored pictures, vivid images. Many people read the book of Daniel in there and they're trying to figure out the specific unfolding of the end time events. They want to know, what is it going to be like? When are we going to come to the end of the age? Is there really a rapture? Is there such a thing as a tribulation? When is the time of the end going to take place? And like armchair theological detectives, they see Daniel as a prophetic whodunit. It's at this point that I should have had a CSI thing, you know, like CSI Miami, and have some screen go, you know, and you can hear the song, and we can try and figure out the crime scene here. They desperately want to know. They desperately want to know the identity of the little horn. They desperately want to know about the ten kingdoms. You know what's interesting? Daniel wants to know. I want to know! And we're going to see some things, hopefully. But if you don't see anything else, don't fail to see God's majesty And God's mystery. And the awful underlying conflict that Daniel's trying to bring to your attention. The struggle, once again, between good and evil. Between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And the underlying struggle that's taking place as God's kingdom begins to unfold and be revealed. The chapter begins with Daniel's vision of four beasts or empires and then as you go right into the center of chapter 7 and verse 9 you have this image of the coming of the son of man and the Messiah when he talks about I watched the thrones which were put in place and the ancient of days was seated his garment was white as snow and his hair was like wool like pure wool wool, and his throne was a flaming what does it say? fire. Yeah, fiery flame. and We're going to look at that more next week. Then he records the vision of God's throne. He records the vision of what it means to see, if you will, the Son of Man. And then the chapter ends with the interpretation of those scenes. So, Tonight, what we're going to look at is the setting of Daniel's dream in verses 1 through 3, the sequence of the dream in verses 4 through 7, and then the lesson or the schooling of Daniel's dream at the end of of, of, of verse 8. And so now we're on location with Daniel. I, I want you to just flip on the dial, and now we're watching God's History Channel. And you'll note in verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. I know what you're thinking. With visions of sugar plums. I and my kerchief and mom and her blah, blah, blah. I know you're going, oh, so this is where this comes from. But unlike that, this vision, this dream is an unfolding of the future. And look what it says. Then he wrote down the dream. Telling the main facts. Do you wonder what he left out? Would you like to know? It's hard enough understanding just what he wrote. The first year of Belshazzar, by the way, would put the dream at about 553 B.C. Daniel would have been 67 years old. Remember now what's happening... The first six chapters were chronology. Now we're going back in time to the first year. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. Nabonidus is still alive. Belshazzar is ruling. And in verse 2, it says, Now, like I said, and he's 67 years old. Daniel spoke in verse 2 saying I saw in my vision by night and behold the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and right away we see images and we think about things that we see elsewhere in the Bible. Now I want to remind you of a biblical principle. One of the principles of biblical interpretation is that a symbol can never mean what it never meant. Now, let me explain that to you. A symbol can never mean what it never meant. And when we were teaching through the book of Revelation, I gave this illustration. I said, imagine you see the American flag. And on that American flag, it is red, white, and blue. And on the field of blue, there are 50 white stars. And on the side, there are alternating stripes. There are 13 of them. Imagine you take that flag to Afghanistan or Iraq and you put it up on a pole and you see the American flag flying and you say to an Iraqi citizen, can you tell me what those stars mean and those stripes mean? And someone might say, it stands for the great Satan and the oppression of the Western world. Is that what it means? What do those stars mean? They're the states. They're the 50 states in America. What do the 13... Oh, I gave you the answer. The 13 stripes, what do they stand for? The original colonies. The stars and the stripes can't mean what they never meant. The sea and the wind. What does it mean? The Hebrew word for wind is... Ruah, it can mean spirits, and by implication, angels. But do you remember where else this appears in the Bible? In Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. It says, in the vision that was given to John on the island of Patmos in Revelation chapter 7, he says, and after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, Holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. You know, the wind throughout the Bible represents the Spirit of God and the power of God. It's the Spirit of God and the power of God blowing on the kingdoms of men. And so, by the way, the number four is always significant in the Bible. The number four speaks of the physical earth. When you see the number four in the Bible, you think of the four corners of the world. You, you think of the four points on a compass, north and south and east and west. You, you think about the four seasons. There are also four seas mentioned in the Bible. Who can name them? Go ahead. Pretend it's the Pentecostal church. You can talk to me. Sea of what? Sea of Galilee? The Dead Sea? The Mediterranean Sea? And the Red Sea? That's exactly right. Those are the four seas mentioned in the Bible. And the Great Sea invariably speaks of the Mediterranean Rim. But the Great Sea can also mean peoples, nations, you've heard the expression, the sea of humanity. And here I suspect Daniel is making reference to the people specifically around the Mediterranean rim and the Mediterranean Sea. History and geography focuses on that area of land, but I want to give you just a tiny lesson in biblical geography, because it's going to be important as we continue our study in the book of Daniel. When the Bible speaks of direction, it is always in reference to the land of Israel and the people of Israel. It's always in reference to Jerusalem and Judea. And so when the Bible speaks of geography and it talks about the north, it means north of Israel, and south, it means south of Israel, and east means east of Israel, and west means west of Israel. You want to know why? Because from God's perspective and His geography, He always sees Israel as the center of humanity on this planet. Do you remember when you were a kid growing up and you you had history and geography and they would that your teacher would pull down the map on the chalkboard. Well, some of you are, I guess, still in the age of computers. But many of you, unfortunately, like me, grew up, unfortunately, in the same circumstances. Way before the invention of personal computers, we would pull the map down on the chalkboard. Remember that? And in the center of the chalkboard was the United States of America. And so understandably, we grew up to think that the United States of America was the center of the world, but it's not true. Israel is the geographic center of God's plan. The place that my friend Joel Rosenberg calls the epicenter. That this world is God's world. And that place is God's place. And look at verse 3, and Four great beasts came up out of the sea, each different from the other. And so he's talking about civilizations and kingdoms of humanity that emerged from this great sea of humanity. And by the way, in Revelation chapter 13, we see that image repeated. In Revelation chapter 13, we see two beasts coming out of the sea. One is the false prophet. One is the Antichrist. And the sequence is very important. You'll note when it says in verse 3, and four beasts came up from the sea. Note carefully the expression, each distinct. That's the meaning. In the original language when it says each different from another, we're left with, with this impression. Each of the beasts represent a chronology of kingdoms. And here's what we already know. The chronology of kingdoms has already been established in Daniel chapter 2. Remember what I said. The head of gold, the chest of silver, the belly of bronze, the legs of iron. And so the head represented Babylon. The chest, the Medes and the Persians. The belly of bronze, Greece. The legs of iron, the Roman Empire. But chapter 7 follows the same sequence, but again from a different vantage point. From the perspective of God, who sees the nations for what they really are and what they're trying to accomplish. And so the Lord begins to write a storyboard... Of the future as it unfolds, and look at verse four. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and I was lifted from the earth, and was and was li- It was lifted from up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and then a man's heart was given to it. Now the lion is the king of beasts, and the eagle is the king of birds. And the national symbol of Babylon was a winged lion. And so in this vision, everyone would have understood what this meant. The wings represented how quickly Babylon was able to conquer her neighbors. The first kingdom combined both majesty and cruelty and strength and power. And in Jeremiah chapter 49 verses 19 through 22, the eagle and the lion are used to describe the coming kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And then Daniel notes the plucking of the wings. And it was made to be lifted from the earth and to stand on two feet like a man with a man's heart. And you'll remember that's exactly what we've already seen earlier in the book of Daniel. God judged King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he thinks he's this awesome powerful, wonderful, majestic king. And remember, he peers over Babylon and he says, look at this great Babylon, all that I have done. And you remember what happened to him. He was made to eat grass like a beast. He stood on two feet and then he crawled on all fours. And then something happened. He returned to the land of sanity. He kicked his Babylonian heels together and he said, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. And remember, his sanity returned to him. He was given the mind of a man and the heart of a man. He got back up on two legs and he returned to sanity And in verse 5 it says, And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. Now again, for those of you who love the Bible and study the Bible, there are 13 references to bears in the Bible. And each time bears are mentioned in the Bible, They're always mentioned in the context of being violent, unpredictable, ferocious, and insatiable. When I was growing up, I didn't read about the images of bears in the Bible. I saw bears on cartoons. Yogi Bear, remember Yogi? Hey, boo-boo. But even our cartoon friend, remember what he would always say? How about a picnic basket? Even the kind bears, they want to eat. And they want to eat all the time. And that's exactly what the Bible pictures. The bear's appetite is never satisfied. And so the Medes and the Persians, their their kingdom stretched from the Indus River, which is in India. And then it went all the way west to the Aegean Sea. So God granted this second kingdom the ability to subdue nations like a hungry bear. And in his dream, you'll know there were three ribs in the mouth of the bear. Ancient historians wonder what those three ribs stood for. Some suggested it was the Medes and the Persians' conquest of Egypt and Lydia. Now, Egypt was a gigantic power at that time that consumed most of North Africa. Lydia was the modern area that you and I would call Syria and Turkey and go all the way north um, into the Baltic region and, and then Babylon. And so some have suggested that the three ribs, let's just be blunt, it was the bear's latest kill. The bear had t- torn its victim to pieces, and so, whatever else it means, it means that that the bear is not satisfied. And you'll note, Daniel notices the bear is lifted to one side. Now, you might have a, a difficulty picturing what that what that is. I'm going to suggest to you: Have you ever seen a bear? that rises up on its two legs and it stretches itself and it stands on its hind feet. That's what I, I'm going to suggest. That he, That's the picture that he's given. And among the Medes and the Persians, the Persians were the dominant end of the Medes and the Persians. By the way, by the, by the time we get to the end of the book of Daniel, the Medes will have disappeared from history and the Persians will be all that is left. Now, Persia is the Area now occupied by the country that you and I know now know as Iran. And so this particular kingdom were the Iranian people, if you will. And then in verse 6, after this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads. And note, dominion was given to it. Now, in our future studies in the book of Daniel, each one of these kingdoms we're going to explore just a little bit more. Now, here, the leopard, we'll discover, represents Greece. The leopard can run at incredible speeds. For those of you who love Animal Planet or the History Channel, you'll discover that the leopard is... Very, very fast. But guess what else the leopard is known for? It's cunning. It's cruelty. And there's a saying in the Bible about leopards. What is it that makes... What is it almost impossible for a leopard to do? Change its spots. That's exactly right. So there's a continuity. Leopards have an ever-present thirst for for blood. Now, this is the empire of Alexander the Great, and those of you who are familiar with history, you know, history bears witness to the fact that Persia was humbled by Greece. There was a man named Socrates, and he taught a man named Plato, and Plato taught a man named Aristotle. And Aristotle taught a man named Alexander the Great. And he grew up and he conquered the entire world. The leopard had four heads. Now again, history tells us that when Alexander the the Great marched through the Dardanelles, he conquered the area that you and I call Palestine, and then Egypt, and then he went through the area of Afghanistan, went all the way to India. At the age of 27, he weeps at the river Indus because there's no more worlds to conquer. He returns to Babylon, and at the age of 30, gets roaring drunk, catches pneumonia, gets ready to die, the generals gathered around because he had no heir and they said, who do you want us to give the kingdom to? And he said, give it to the strong. And the empire was divided into four geographic regions controlled by four Greek generals. Ptolemy, Seleucus, Lysimachus, Cassander, Greece and Macedonia were controlled by Cassander and Antipater. Thrace and Asia Minor was controlled by Lysimachus, who was also Alexander the Great's bodyguard. Syria and Babylon and much of the Middle East was controlled by Seleucus Nicator. Egypt and Palestine were controlled by Ptolemy the first Soter who becomes the ancestor of Cleopatra the seventh and much of the rest of the book of Daniel is going to be talking about the motions that take place between these kingdoms but what is remarkable is again God sees the unfolding of all of this hundreds of years before it happens Daniel mentions like a leopard which had it four wings of a bird. The beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. Do you realize that Alexander the Great had 35,000 soldiers? The king of Persia had between 200,000 and 300,000 soldiers. And in a brilliant strategy that combined guts and gall and make no mistake about it, a miracle, Alexander subdued the Persian Empire. You know what the Bible teaches? That even though he was clever, and even though he was handsome, and even though he was knowledgeable, even though he was brilliant, God gave dominion to Alexander. Alexander was subject to the will of God. Alexander was subject to the plan of God. Alexander was subject to the sovereignty of God. And by the way, when he marched into Jerusalem, when he was conquering the area, the high priest met him at the gates of Jerusalem with the scroll of Daniel. And he unveiled Daniel chapter 7 to him. That will blow your mind. And look at verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions. And behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts. That were before it. It wasn't like a lion. It wasn't like a bear. It wasn't like a leopard. It was not like any animal in the animal kingdom. It was not like any beast that he was familiar with. And note, it had ten horns. Now, remember in chapter 2, Daniel wrote in verse 40. The fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes that kingdom, it will smash or break in pieces and crush all others. So Daniel describes this beast as dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. And the beast had huge iron teeth, devouring, breaking in pieces, and know what it says, and trampling the residue with its feet. It's as if if hundreds of years in advance, you could hear the marching, the stomping of the Roman legions as they make their way around the Mediterranean rim, their sandals pierced with iron spikes. The beast is cruel. The beast is material. The beast is imperialistic. And the beast has ten horns. Now, by the way, horns in the Bible always represent power, kings, or kingdoms. Rome didn't invent crucifixion but they perfected it the Italian people didn't invent spaghetti the Chinese did but the Italian people perfected it when it came to crucifixion and torture and cruelty no one matched Rome the victim hung with iron nails Like daggers. Like teeth. Rome crucified Jesus. And do you remember what they used to crucify him? Iron. Nails. Spikes. Like teeth. Rome crucified Jesus. Rome beheaded Paul. Rome crucified Peter. Rome banished John to the island of Patmos. Rome burned Christians. Rome took Christians and sewed them inside the skins of animals and and allowed wild beasts to tear them to shreds. Rome impaled Christians and smeared them with tar and lit them on fire. Other nations were cruel and wicked and evil, but none matched Rome. And by the way, this is why Bible teachers and prophecy scholars speak of a revived Roman Empire, perhaps like a European Union or a European Common Market, because some people have suggested that there's a fifth kingdom, a future kingdom. But I'm going to suggest to you that what Daniel says is that the kingdom emerges from this kingdom. You'll note that the ten horns grow out of the head of the fourth beast. You know what that suggests? Rome grew... Rome shrank. Rome didn't die, really. It never disappeared completely. Rome is the only kingdom that wasn't destroyed by an outside kingdom. Rome rotted from within. In the decay and rottenness, it simply didn't die. It was like a leprous, cankered, sore, infested person who's covered with rot and filth, but he continues to live. And Rome wasn't destroyed. Rome never really completely disappeared. It rotted and it fell apart. And the nations of Western Europe and adjacent to the Mediterranean Sea, guess what? are still there. They exist. David Jeremiah wrote, nations that immigrated to Rome didn't found a new kingdom but intermarried with Roman families. And they continued the old Roman kingdom without dominion. And so as you see the collapse of the empire, it, it begins to spread throughout Europe and, it, and then it establishes itself. By the way, in his book, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which was written in 1788, Edward Gibbon defined five basic reasons why the civilization withered and died. One wonders whether historians centuries from now will find a deadly parallel between the United States and Imperial Rome. But let me just let you decide for yourself. When Gibbon wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, he outlined five main reasons why it corrupted and then collapsed. Here was number one. An undermining of the dignity and the sanctity of the home and a redefining of marriage as the fundamental basis for human society. Number two. Higher and higher taxes. The spending of public money for free bread, circuses, and health care. No, it doesn't say health care. I just made that up. Number three, a mad craze for pleasure with pastimes becoming more and more exciting and more and more brutal and more and more immoral number four building vast armies and weapons and a military establishment even though the real enemy was within the decay of individual responsibility and number five the trivialization Of religion and the decay of faith. Faith fading into a mere form where it just became ritual. Losing touch with life. Losing touch with power a kind of a religion that didn't inform the conscience and failed to guide the people. Gibbon's words, not mine. Does this sound at all familiar to you? And then in verse 8, I was considering the horns. And there was another horn. A little one coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Daniel starts to consider. He he ponders the meaning of the horns. Now, I'm going to point something out to you. In history of the Roman Empire, and I've, I've devoted a great deal of my adult life to the study of the Roman Empire. In my study of the Roman Empire, I've never been able to ascertain a time in the period of the Roman Empire where it simply consisted of ten provinces. And so we have every reason to believe that whatever this is, it's something that's taking place in the future. And Daniel considers the meaning of the horns and there's this little horn whom three of the first horns are plucked out by the roots. And the word plucked out carries with it the idea of being utterly destroyed. The Bible seems to suggest, and Bible scholars and prophecy teachers suggest, that this little horn will somehow subdue or conquer three kingdoms, possibly violently or forcefully, even perhaps even annihilating them completely. Is it possible that there is in the future a nuclear catastrophe that involved the kingdom of Babylon and the kingdom of Persia? the kingdom of Greece. Remember, Macedonia is right next to the Balkan peninsula. So, later in verse 20, we're going to just take a quick peek. We're not going to be able to, we're going to pay more attention later and the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which three fell namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words whose appearance became greater than the rest of his fellows as we continue our study in the book of of, Revel, uh, of the book of Daniel in this particular chapter we're going to see this little horn grows larger and larger and larger he's able to conquer three of them and then use sheer power to subdue the rest of the nations and then he brings them under his own control and subjugation. It's a picture of world domination. Is this horn that has eyes like a man and speaks pompous words, is this little horn a king or is it a kingdom? Is it a king? kingdom. Now we go back to what I talked about, the biblical principle that a symbol can never mean what it never meant. And eyes in the Bible always speak of a human being. The eyes of the the human, you've heard that the eye is 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 the gate to the soul. And I'm going to suggest to you that this little horn is a man. And the man is dominated by pride and self-will that this man has messianic complexes. We're left with the impression that whoever this man is, he's on his own. He's completely apart from God. He is detached and separated from God and even believes that he is God. The words are pompous because they're spoken by someone completely who believes that he is God. And we already know that when a man pretends to be God, there's an inevitable showdown, a conflict that takes place between the true God and the pretender. The reason why this is important to you, I'm going to take you to a place that you probably don't want to go. But whenever you act independently from God, whenever you speak independently from God, whenever you detach from God, you're playing the role of the Antichrist. No wonder in the New Testament it says, There will be many antichrists. But this conflict, this showdown between the true God and the pretender God will begin to unfold. And by the way, the scene changes as if this is an unfinished portrait. The portrait will be painted sooner than later. In the Bible, the little horn has many titles. He's called the willful king in Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. He's called the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. He's called the son of perdition in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. He's called the wicked one in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. He's called the beast. Don't you find that interesting? In Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. He's called the sum and the substance of that which is detached from his own humanity. It's not fair to call him a human because human beings are made in the image of God. Later, We're going to discover the Antichrist will be an intellectual genius, Daniel 8, 23, an oratorical master, Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. In the Bible, he is seen as a political, a commercial, a military, and a religious genius. So if you're wondering if Barack Obama is the Antichrist, hate to disappoint me, he doesn't fit the bill. And in all fairness... John McCain doesn't fit the bill. Henry Kissinger doesn't fit the bill. George W. Bush doesn't fit the bill. Genius is not the first word that comes to my mind when I think of our president. And let me tell you something. Whoever this person is, and whenever this person comes... He will have all of those qualities. He will control the western bloc nations according to Revelation chapter 17, verse 12. He will create a mechanism of conflict and then peace. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, he will create an uncertain peace. But that's for a future study. So where is the world going? Wherever it's going, and remember what it says, it talks about ten horns. A lot of people have wondered what that means, and I'm going to suggest what I think it means. I think it means regions, specific zones, that there will be ten zones on the planet earth. Those zones will have two large distinctions. It might be as simple as north and south. It might be as simple as east and west. And I'm going to suggest to you that whoever this coming world leader is, when there's a global governance, the planet itself will be divvied up into ten regions. And one of those regions will produce the Antichrist. He will subdue three of those other regions and with the sheer force of his will he'll unite the planet and I believe that there's really only one thing that could create a mechanism for a global governance and a world federation in my view it's a global catastrophe and that global catastrophe might come in the form of what I believe is the rapture of the church of Jesus Christ where millions of people suddenly disappear Could it be some other global catastrophic mechanism? Perhaps. But you know what this means? Whatever else the future holds, we're not going to be hit by a meteor from outer space and incinerated. There's not going to be a pulsar that explodes and destroys the planet. God says it won't happen. While the civilization of the Ten Kingdoms remains Intact, Jesus will return. In other words, civilization must unfold the way that the Bible claims. And then Jesus will return. And by the way, the world will remain in some kind of form until Jesus Christ returns. So what's the ultimate end? Well, we know that the Antichrist will be crushed by the Lord Jesus Christ at the Battle of Mount Armageddon in Revelation chapter 19. We know that he'll be thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 19, 20. He'll be a master of deceit in Second Thessalonians 2, 10. He'll, profane a re- he'll enter into and proclaim himself God in a rebuilt temple in Matthew 24. He, according to Revelation chapter 13, verse 2, will be like a shadow. He'll have the shape of a human being, but all of his humanity will have disappeared and he'll actually be energized by Satan himself. So, what do we learn? Whatever else happens, human progress will not result in a utopia. Things are not going to get better and better, they're going to get worse and worse. The Bible teaches that there's a purpose and a direction. Why does God allow the world to get worse and worse? And why does God allow nations to destroy and devour one another? I'm going to give you just a little hint. And and it's an incomplete answer. But I think in part it's because God wants to demonstrate that the cruel and ultimate failure of human beings to govern themselves and their utter inability to rule in a world that God has created. Have you ever met a single government that longed for and loved the appearing of Jesus Christ? Can you imagine if I ran for office and then got elected? And I said something like this. At my inaugural speech, I said, I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return very soon. What would happen? That's exactly right! CNN, CBS, Fox News. Gino Gerasi says he believes that Jesus could come back at any moment. All of the coups, All of the plots All of the rebellions All of the chaos Is just a simple reminder That man can't control And that God in heaven is in control And as you see things spiraling Spiraling Remember, remember, remember One day King Jesus will come And he's going to make everything right By the way, someone has rightly pointed out the cycle, not just of civilizations and not just of nations, but of individuals. Listen. We go from bondage to spiritual faith. We go from spiritual faith to great courage. We go from great courage to liberty. From liberty to abundance. From abundance to selfishness. From selfishness to complacency. From complacency to apathy. From apathy to dependency. From dependency back to bondage. And the cycle begins again could very well be that bondage is the one thing that will create spiritual faith. That there will come a fundamental commitment that slavery is not a good thing and freedom is a great thing. And the Bible teaches that the greatest slavery that we face... Is not an economic disaster But rather it is the slavery to sin And the liberation that comes In the person of Jesus Christ As we experience grace and mercy And hope and faith and freedom Look around you Where are we? Is it bondage? Is it spiritual faith? Is it courage? Is it liberty? Is it abundance? Is it selfishness? Is it complacency? Is it apathy? Is it dependence? Where are you? In the journey. Maybe God is trying to awaken you. Not just to a new way of thinking but a new way of living and a new way of loving and a new way of becoming an effective tool in the hands of an eternal God as you make a difference in your family and in your church in your community history is going somewhere but where it will eventually end I guarantee you It's when the nations look up and say, Maranatha, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.